Once again, welcome to Grace Community Church. My name is Michael uh, here at Grace. I am the young adult and middle school pastor. And just like Sarah was talking about, wanted to mention a few things that she already did. Uh, we have these You've Been Gifted cards for this holiday season, and we've done this in years past. But we want to be a light to our community. We want to have a presence. And simply by doing these rectum, ooh, rectum, <laughs> random acts of kindness, it's still early. Just let me get warmed up. Let me get warmed up. Whew, wow, that didn't start as well as I thought. All right, here we go. Random act of kindness. And we have these cards which just simply have our church address on them. You've been gifted. And you can uh, purchase somebody's tank of gas for them. You can go to the gas station and say, hey, um, don't know who you are, but I would love to do this for you. Um, hand them this card. Or you can leave a generous tip, pay for someone's meal through the drive-thru, anything um, just to essentially be a light. As believers, we are, you know, loving others like God is commanding us to do. And in the announcement, Sarah also mentioned Kalahari Retreat. And uh, as, as one of the few uh, pastors here at Grace, our goal is for students to not only know Jesus, but for them to grow in their faith. And in terms of one single event, there is not anything that we offer that does that job better than Kalahari. And every year we have um, hundreds of students that we just hear stories from different youth pastors and even different churches that their lives are being changed, their students' lives. And actually Jeremy, our, our technical director, put me on to a story that I just want to read real quick. Uh, this is from someone, Jake, who is a member here at Grace, who is still, um, still a member, still serving. And they are in our young adult ministry now. But when they were in middle school, he attended Kalahari Retreat, and he actually wrote to us and, and kind of told a little bit about what Kalahari did for him. He said, I have been attending Grace ever since I was in sixth grade. When I was in seventh grade, I was dealing with depression. So one time during church, I confronted Zach, Pastor Zach Pinkerton, who's now our Tiffin campus pastor. I confronted Zach and said, hey, I'm dealing with, with a lot right now. I don't know what to do. Zach said, hey, you should come to Kalahari retreat with us. It will be the best weekend of your life. So I went to Kalahari. And during one of the sessions, after Clayton King was delivering a very powerful sermon, he then said, if you are willing to accept Jesus into your life for the first time, please pray these words to him. I prayed that prayer, and after we got done, I stood up, and there were many students who stood as well. And after that, I went and talked to a youth leader and told them about my story. And this is just one story of many that we constantly hear, that we are aiming for, that we, I am 100% confident that if, if student, if, if your students, if anyone goes to Kalahari, they're going to have a blast. They, we have a water park. Our sessions are going to be awesome. We saw David Marvin, our speaker, which I am extremely excited for. But our goal isn't for them to have fun. Our goal is for them to have life change and for God to work in their life. And this is just one example of that. And just like Jake him giving his life to Jesus at Kalahari, it changed everything for him. But that wouldn't even be possible if it wasn't for what we celebrate every December. And that's why with this series, our Christmas series, we want to focus on realizing that Christmas changes everything. And when the holiday season rolls around, I mean, even on stage, we're, we're ready for it. we got the trees up, and I'm sure you guys are at home too. When the holiday season rolls around, we know the story. We know Mary and Joseph traveling for the census, 
going to Bethlehem, can't find any room. They settle in a barn somewhere, the only place that, that they could find to settle down. And Mary, being pregnant with Jesus, gives birth to him in a manger. And we know the story, and, and even as, as, as I think about it, I often tend to kind of doctor it up a little bit and, and make it a little more appealing to think about. I don't like to think about God being born in a smelly, unclean barn next to some farm animals. And, and obviously Mary's in pain, is giving birth, and they're probably stressed from traveling. And all this stuff is going on, and they're probably, in the long run, they are trusting God. But we like to picture this kind of like perfect nativity scene setting. And whatever that was, whatever it looked like for Mary to give birth to Jesus, the fact doesn't change that God left heaven to come to earth. And so we want to spend a few weeks looking at different parts of the story and to fully understand Christmas or Jesus' birth, we have to understand that this event wasn't random. This event wasn't just an ordinary birth that we now celebrate as a great human, that this is the birth of Jesus. And for God, again, this wasn't random. This wasn't option B on his agenda. This had been led up to for thousands of years. And people had been waiting for this event, this child, this person to be born. In the Old Testament, we have prophecies, which if, if you are a prophet, you're simply a messenger of God. So a prophecy is a message of God. And there are hundreds of prophecies that describe this coming Savior, this child to be born that is going to be a big deal, that is going to save people. And one of the most famous prophecies that we read about, especially during Christmas time, you'll probably see it all over, is found in Isaiah and we're going to look at Isaiah's chapter 7 and 9, but we'll, we'll read those in a minute. And before we get to those prophecies talking about the birth of Jesus, I want to kind of set up the context a little bit. Because understanding Isaiah chapter 7, we can get more out of it when we realize the plot, the setting, what's kind of going on. Isaiah lived over 700 years before Jesus. So Jesus was born, but... We'll get to that. 700 years before that, we have Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet, a messenger of God. And he is dealing with Israel. But Israel at this time is divided into two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. The Jewish people are divided. The northern kingdom, Israel. And then we have the southern kingdom, Judah. And Judah is, is where we're going to focus on for a second. We learn about Judah's king. And his name is King Ahaz. And if you know anything about Ahaz... The Bible tells us he is a bad guy. He, uh, he doesn't get the best resume that, that we see from the Bible. He not only rejected God. I mean, he was a king of God's people, but he rejected the true God. He worshipped all these fake idols, these false religions. He would build altars to them so that him and other people could worship them. He desecrated God's temple. We even read, we know in history that he sacrificed his own children to these false gods. And he doesn't, I mean, what's funny is that his father, Jotham, who was also a king, and his son, Hezekiah, who was a king after him, both of them were good kings that, that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I don't know what happened to this guy, but he is a bad egg. Something went wrong along the way. And while Ahaz was in leadership, the, as, the, as the problem starts to develop, while Ahaz was in leadership of Judah, 
there was a rising power in the Middle East called Assyria. And the Assyrian Empire, essentially, they were threatening other nations and other kingdoms in the Middle East. And so because they were such a large threat, they were a huge threat to, to other smaller nations, these nations decided, okay, you know what? We need to band together and take down Assyria because we stand no chance on our own. We're going to eliminate them before they even have a chance to, to come at us. And so nations around Judah, that's exactly what they do. They form an alliance and they, they say, okay, we have a few countries, but we need more. So they go to Judah and King Ahaz and say, hey, would you like to join our alliance? Would you like to join our group? We're going to go fight Assyria. Ahaz says, eh, no thanks. I'm good. I'll pass. I appreciate the offer though. And so the alliance, as they ask him this, and they are rejected, uh, they're not a fan of that response. And so they say, well, if you won't join us, then we're going to invade you. If you won't join our team, we're just going to eliminate you altogether. And King Ahaz, in an instant, finds himself, finds his identity, his reputation, his wealth, his status, his power, everything is threatened. All because he said no to this alliance. And, and Isaiah is told to go talk to King Ahaz. And again, Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God. This, this, this entire time, King Ahaz is trusting himself. He's not trusting God. He's not asking for God's wisdom. He's not going to him in prayer or trusting what Isaiah has to say. He is making his own arrangements. And actually what King Ahaz does is he goes to Assyria, the original bad guys in the story, and he goes to the Assyrian emperor and says, hey, can you help me out? I got some people on my back that, that want to eliminate me. They're trying to invade me. Can you help? Which turns out not to be the greatest choice for him. But he is writing letters to the Assyrian emperor. He is sending gifts. He probably gave him a you've been gifted card. He said, here, can you please help? Uh, I got these nations that are just, they're, they're trying to invade me. And again, he's doing this all on his own. He's making his own arrangements. Isaiah is telling him, hey, you need to trust God. You need to trust him that he will provide, that he will not allow these people to succeed. And so what God actually does, as King Ahaz continuously just says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to trust God. God actually goes out of his way to say, all right, Ahaz, you won't trust me. But I will give you any sign, any proof that you want that I should be trusted. He said, look, you want a sign, I'll give it to you. You want proof that you need to trust me and not yourself and these other countries, I'll give it to you. God really, uh, we read about this in early chapter 7, that he really put no limits on this sign request. King Ahaz probably could have asked for anything and God would have done it. He could have said, all right, God, yeah, can you, can you switch night and day for 24 hours and just kind of um, show me a crazy miracle? God would have done it. Yeah, can you raise somebody from the dead? That would be awesome. God would have done it. But as soon as this request is made and God said, yeah, I will offer you, I will give you any sign, Ahaz kind of all of a sudden becomes spiritual. And he actually quotes scripture to say no to God. It's kind of funny. He says, no, I will not test the Lord. 
God, it, the premise is right, you shouldn't test God, but God is offering a sign, and he says no. God is saying, I'll, sh- I'll give you anything, I am the one you need to put your trust in. And he says, nope, not going to do it, I will not test God. But I think what we see here is that Ahaz, he didn't want to sign. Ahaz had no intentions of trusting God in the first place. And so he knew that if he witnessed a sign or a miracle of showing God's strength and God's power, he knew if he saw that, he would have to abandon his agreement with Assyria. He knew he would have to go God's way instead of his way. He knew that, okay, yeah, God's right. I should probably do this. And he doesn't want to. And I know for me, I can tend to be a lot like Ahaz in my life. Where when I'm dealing with a problem, or maybe a lot of us in this room are the same way. When we're dealing with a problem, when we're fearful about something, when we are worrying, instead of trusting God, we make our own arrangements. Right? We know what God says. We know probably the godly, Christ-like thing to do is, we know what would be better for God's glory and for our betterment, but we choose to go down our own path. Even, maybe we're like Ahaz, and if we're going through something, maybe, you know, Ahaz had Isaiah speaking truth to him. Maybe we have people in our life, Christian-believing friends, who are consistently telling us truth, but we don't want to hear that. Maybe we come here and we see Pastor Kevin every Sunday telling us truth of who God is and what he wants for our lives. But we don't want to necessarily obey God's truth because it's more difficult. I don't want to do my own thing. I don't want to necessarily trust God. I don't want to give up my way of of how I think I can fix this situation. So maybe it's something different for every person in this room. But for example, maybe maybe it's money. Maybe money's tight, and you're saying, I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this next week. I don't know how I'm going to make it to next month. And you know what? I, I, I know God tells me that I should tithe. I know God tells me that, that I should honor him first with the wealth and the blessings that I've been given. But I don't even have enough money to put me first, let alone God. And we know what he says. We know what's true. We know what the Bible tells us, but we don't do it. Or maybe it's dealing with a relationship or friendship, knowing that, you know what, I should forgive this person. They've treated me bad. They really haven't done anything to, you know, to fix this. And I know God is telling me I should forgive them and I should bear with one another in love. But I don't want to do that. I would rather remain, I would rather hang on to this bitterness, hang on to this grudge. Whatever different scenario it is, it happens in my life, and I know it does all of ours, that we tend to choose our way over God's. And that is exactly what is happening here. Ahaz doesn't want to trust God because he wants to trust himself. And Isaiah continues talking. He says, all right, you don't want a sign, no problem. But you're getting one anyway, right? Because God, he can do that. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this is where he gives the sign. And we have this verse on the screen as well, or you have um, your Bibles as well. Isaiah seven fourteen, 
Ahaz doesn't want a sign, but Isaiah says, well, you're getting one anyway. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Isaiah says, behold, pay attention, get ready, here it is. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. This sign that Isaiah gives on behalf of God doesn't just affect Ahaz. It actually impacts the entire nation of Israel. And it says the sign that God will remain faithful, that he will allow his people to stay standing. The sign is that the virgin woman will give birth to a child. And again, obviously it's not every day you see that because normally to be pregnant, there's a prerequisite to that. But God says, nope, a virgin woman will give birth to this child, Emmanuel. And God's not just saying, hey, name this child Manny. Okay, he's not just choosing a specific name for no reason. Emmanuel means God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. This child that this woman will give birth to is God with us. And Isaiah, he continues to describe this child even more and, and the effects of this child. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 4 say this. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Actually, between chapter 7 and 9, chapter 8, it's kind of depressing. God is having kind of this theme of, you know what, you, you, you've disobeyed me, and now there'll be some punishment for that. There will be a time when darkness will, will kind of be overtaking you and your people, but that will not last forever. God or Isaiah is saying, hey, there is hope. There will be a future time when light shines on this dark land. And what we just read, we see God's people overcoming their enemies. We see celebration Joy, rewards, freedom, victory that is to come at a future time. And speaking of victory and celebration, can we give it up for our Clyde Flyers? I mean, man, that is, man, that is awesome. They, it seems like they got hot at the right time of the season. And, uh, man, poor Panthers. They didn't even, they destroyed them. It was like 42 to 14, right? I'll be honest, I was working on my message in my office when the game was going on yesterday, and I couldn't find anywhere to, like, stream it online. So I was just watching the score, like, for literally an hour. I wasn't as productive as I should have been. But I, I looked at the score, and it was 14-7. to 7. I said, like, okay, it's a close game. And then 21-7, and then 28-7, and then 35, and then 42-7, and it just went up and up and up and up. And, uh, man, we could not be more excited for, for the players, for the families, for everyone involved. I know we have some few students on the team, and also I believe we have uh, Dave Marty on the defensive side of things, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if he's in here or not, but, um, oh, there we go. I, yeah, give it up for Dave, yeah. I'll be honest, though. I was 100% ready to wake up this morning and just hear news of Clyde or Greensprings just like on fire or burned to the ground due to celebration like, yeah, every light pole in Clyde is just torn down. You know, I didn't know what to expect. 
But big shout out to them. That is a big deal. State champs and worthy of celebration. They, there is um, joy to be had because of that. But in the same way, we have this passage. All of these same things these people have, victory and joy and celebration and them overcoming and defeating their enemies. But why? Like what is such a big deal that they are excited? They are waiting for something. And what is it? Verses 6 through 7 tell us exactly what that is. That they are waiting for what we already talked about in chapter 7. Verse 6 says, a child will be born to us. That all of these results, all of this is dependent on a future child to come. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on... And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is what the Jewish people were waiting for. This child who is going to be king. This child who is not only man, but is also fully God. It said it was given from God to us. This, God who is, or this child who is fully man, fully God, who is going to establish Israel's kingdom forever. And Isaiah actually gives four names in addition to God with us. Four names for this child. He says, Wonderful Counselor, Eternal Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And all these names give different kind of snapshots of who this child is. And it summarizes his character. It talks about Mighty God. Stressing the emphasis that this child is God. That he is divine. He's not some mere human. Uh, eternal Father, showing that this child is not only eternal, but is the source of eternal life. Again, no normal human being, but this is God. And being eternal Father, focusing kind of on the care and discipline of his people. That he is going to protect and provide for his children. Prince of Peace. Most governments... And most people with authority, they gain more power and more authority through war or through tension or through violence taking over people. But not this king. This king, he would build and sustain his kingdom through peace and through justice and through righteousness. And actually the first, one, first name mentioned, Wonderful Counselor. Out of all the names, to me it kind of stands out because... The first three that we mentioned, those seem like royal titles. But Wonderful Counselor seems more like a, um, you know, it doesn't seem like a title. It seems more um, just for, for a human. But the word wonderful is as awesome or out of the ordinary, describing God. So an awesome, a wonderful counselor. And this could not be more true or more needed. Because the way that God helps us through our problems, through our worries, through what we're dealing with, the way that God helps us through most of those problems is by allowing us to see how great and how awesome and how wondrous he actually is. And he is a counselor who knows how to help. He is ultimately wise. 
way more than I could ever be or anyone on earth could ever be. This child who is deemed wonderful counselor, he is never going to lead us astray. He is never going to lead us somewhere that he doesn't want us to be. And we see that life's greatest victory and joy and freedom, it comes from knowing him. It comes from knowing him and valuing him above all else. And that doesn't necessarily take away our problems. Knowing how great God is doesn't change the bills that I have to pay or the broken relationships in my life or the sin that I'm battling with. It doesn't change those things. But it does change how I walk through them. And it changes how I tackle them. If I'm struggling with discontentment or greed... Okay, if I'm just, you know what, I can't get enough, I'm not satisfied with what I have. The answer to that is not, you know what, I'm just going to mentally just get over the fact that I, will, that, that I won't be richer. I'm going to get over the fact that, you know what, I don't need a new car, I don't need a new house. I'm just going to be content with what I have. It's not necessarily the answer. The solution to greed or not being content is valuing our greatest possession above all else. And knowing that Jesus is greater than anything we could ever want. Or maybe if, if we're dealing with, you know, just a general, what do I live my life for? Maybe what Pastor Kevin talked about last week, what is our foundation? We're all building this life. What are we building it on? And the solution is not just to live a good life or to, to not make too many waves and hopefully be good enough to get into heaven. It's not the solution. The solution to, to what to build our foundation on is holding Jesus as our greatest treasure and obeying him and his word, knowing that he is greater than anything else. And essentially, as we walk through the Christmas story these next few weeks, that's what it's all about. God fulfilling his promise to Ahaz originally, we get kind of a snapshot of what Jesus is going to provide for us. But God is talking to Ahaz who has a problem. He wants to trust himself, but God is saying, no, trust me. Don't trust them. Don't trust Assyria. Don't trust those other nations. Don't trust your own plan. I am better. I am wonderful counselor. I am mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. I am the one that you need to listen to, not anybody else. And one day, I am going to send the one to ultimately fix your greatest issue, Repair your biggest need, which is sin. And the fact that we are separated from our creator. And since Isaiah spoke this, they waited over 700 years for this promise, for this sign, for this child to be born. Over 700 years. I get impatient waiting for ads to be done on YouTube let alone 700 years. Okay, I'm a type of person that I, I don't know if anyone in here enjoys waiting, but I do not. I'm the type of person that if I'll go to a restaurant and I'll sit down, I don't even have to be in a hurry. I don't have to be like starving, like I need food now. But if I notice that other people are receiving their food before me and I got here before they did, yeah, I don't like that. Okay, then I, begin, I become more impatient and actually what I start doing is mapping out the entire restaurant. You know what I mean? I'm like, okay, I was here 12 minutes before you. 
and, I, and you got your food, and I was here way before you. You know, I don't enjoy waiting. I don't necessarily know anybody who does. But they waited 700 years trusting God, generation after generation, trusting God for centuries, knowing that he was going to fulfill his promise. But they trusted, and they were excited for this child to be born who will be king, who in their expectations was going to overthrow the foreign governments that were oppressing them so that Israel one day could be top dog and this person would, would lead them into that era. And then Jesus is born. The king, the savior that they have been waiting for is born in a barn by, some, by a couple of young, poor parents next to some smelly animals. Yeah, that, that, that's not what our Savior deserves. They're thinking, no, 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 he is royalty. He can't be coming in that fashion. Like, that's not, that's not what he deserves. But Jesus, he came into this world possibly the exact opposite of what people thought he was going to. Probably in a completely different way than everyone anticipated. And a lot of them, they missed this sign. A lot of them missed what God was doing, but not everyone. If we fast forward 700 years to Luke chapter 2, we read about after Jesus' birth, and we read about someone who correctly waited on the Lord and trusted him and knew what his intentions were for this child. Luke chapter 2, this is after Jesus was born. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to Jerusalem to the temple to essentially, um, you know, dedicate him to God. And, and he runs in, I'm sorry, they run into someone here who God um, led to the temple also. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So we don't exactly know how, but we know that he was following God, he was righteous, he was obeying him, and God gave him the message that said, hey, you will not die, you will not pass away before you see this child, before you see the greatest gift to the world, before you see the Savior. And this guy is waiting. He is looking forward to the Messiah. And as he is at the temple, the Spirit leads him there. He notices Jesus. He picks him right out. And maybe even before Mary was ready to give him over to him. We keep reading. It says, Simeon came into the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms. Bless God. And said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people. He's saying, I can die in peace. I have seen God's promise. I have seen him fulfill what he said he was going to. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. 
This is the sign. This child who will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles is what the verse says. And a Gentile, simply anyone who's not a Jew. So it is a non-Jewish person. person, And I'm you know, assuming most of us are Gentiles in this room. A light to not only Israel, not only the Jewish people, but everyone, the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews, a lot of them were concerned with, with, uh, with political status and what this child and what this, what this king was ultimately going to do for them. But it was, it, it was more than that. God's saying, no, you don't understand. This child will not only save you politically, but this child will save you from your sin, which is our greatest need. And again, not just Jews, but the entire world. That as Israel was waiting for this person, a lot of them only caught a small picture of what he came to do. And it's a bigger plan than a lot of them realized. That involves us, that involves you, that involves me. And he knew, Simeon, he knew exactly who this child was and what he was here for. This is the child that they had been waiting for for thousands of years as it was promised in the garden. As it was promised to Abraham and then through Moses and then through David and as Isaiah spoke about him. And the entire Old Testament leading up to this one child, one event, one person. The one who would exclusively and permanently fix their sin problem. Because there is no one else who was able to do that. And so as we look about what led up to Christmas and what Christmas is all about, Jesus came for more than just wanting us to to have a great life. He came for more than wanting to better our situation. He came, as Galatians 1 talks about, he came to rescue us from our sin. To rescue us. If you rescue somebody, that means you necessarily can't do it yourself. You need help. You need assistance. Jesus came to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us from our sins. That's what he came to do. And what we learn this morning and what what I want to walk away with is that God's promises are far greater than we think. God's promises are far better than we can imagine. Even for those of us who believe in God, what we believe about him and what he's able to do is, is, is too small. We see as, as the people waited and what they were expecting is military and, and what they wanted is a political strong leader to lead them into a better era of comfort and them taking over their enemies. But that's not what Jesus came to do his first go around. Jesus came to give them hope and peace and free them not necessarily from their enemies but from their sins. But we have to choose him. Just because Jesus was born, he lived a perfect life and died and rose rose again doesn't necessarily mean that his life and death is credited to our account. We have to choose him. Only for those who acknowledge their sin who realize that we fall short of God's standard. And there's nothing I can do, there's nothing you can do to earn my righteousness, to get on God's level, to reach his glory. And so I deserve hell. But Jesus 
choosing, or God sending Jesus to be born. And him dying, being born, living a perfect life, dying for our sins. We have to choose him. Admit that we are sinners, believing that he died and rose for us to pay for our sins and choosing to follow him. And so if you have made that decision, if you haven't, after the service we'll be in room one, some of the pastors, and we would love to talk to you about what it means to have a relationship with God and choosing to follow him with your life. But this child, this king, this savior, this Emmanuel, God with us, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, this child who they've been waiting for for thousands and hundreds of years, he is the reason that we celebrate. And he is so much greater. His promises are so much better than we could ever imagine. And that should change everything for us. Let's go ahead and pray as we uh, continue in our service. God, we thank you so much for sending Jesus for our sin. God, as he was highly anticipated, people were waiting for him for hundreds of years after Isaiah spoke and even before that. God, I pray that we can have that same expectation of what he's going to do in our life and also as he returns a second time. But God, I thank you for the gift of his birth. And I pray that all of us would realize that your promises are far greater than anything I can come up with. They are far greater than what I have to offer. But our lives are meant to follow you and trust you. God, we thank you for his birth. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his, his resurrection. We thank you for the hope that he provides. In your name, amen.